The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So, thank you to the BSV. It's been a long time since I have been here and wonderful to sit in front of faces, actual faces. Um, I've given a few talks over the um, the COVID period, but I apologize. We had a, the last talk I was supposed to get, we had an electrical <laughs> problem. We had a storm and the electricity was out for the whole weekend. And the one before I was uh, unwell, actually. So here we are once again on a beautiful day. So first I think we'll just... Um, do a little bit of meditation, even just for five minutes, to bring ourselves here and relax our bodies and our minds. So just um, observe your posture, how you're sitting with your feet or your knees on the ground in some way. spine or your back you still relax is fine but just being aware of the actual posture first on the top of the head we'll just relax allowing the face to soften the eyes and if they're closed to just allow the eyelids and the eyes to soften, cheek and the mouth. Same time feeling alert, present. Bringing that attention down, relaxing your shoulders and your arms. Just breathing, bringing that air into your lungs, into the belly. In a slow and natural way. Sounds may enter the space. You may also sense others' presence in the room. You 
allowing ourselves to be open whatever's arising in this moment. When we breathe out, we just allow it to settle. This is the only moment we really exist. In all reality, the body is doing its function. But wherever we are placing our attention, our awareness, that's where we're alive. That's where we're present. Where we've been or where we're planning to go, we just allow that to all be as it is in this moment. There's nothing to do there. And bring our focus here. can continue to stay in your meditation while I talk or you can relax the body and focus on what I'm going to share today. The topic of my talk is actually called Flowers in the Sky. I'll tell the little Zen story further into it, into the talk, but flowers in the sky. They mean from a, a Zen Buddhist perspective, whatever it is that brings the mind to illumination or helps to awaken us, 
may be the Dhamma, it may be something, somebody said that is very profound. But it is that moment of realization, moment of insight, deep insight, This last, uh, well, nine, ten months <laughs> for me has been a very long lockdown, and for all of you too. And during this lockdown, I had the opportunity to uh, spend a lot of time in the garden. Um, some Vietnamese people had offered a, a Quan Yin. I don't know if. Langdon would like to pop that picture up. And um, it meant that I had to find the means to make a foundation, a plinth, and have it tiled, and then find a way to erect this statue in the garden somewhere. And put a garden around it, develop the garden. So my COVID period became um, a time where this project was undertaken. And it is because of this particular project and planting out many plants. You'd like to put on the next one, Langdon? Just going to show a few and then we'll hold a picture. And making paths. So I have a, in the front of the house, there was a paddock with some gardens, some plants. And the property has always had, since I've been there, a few very large plants, but uh, large trees. But we've, over the years, added one here and there. So where you see all the little pegs and we had to uh, protect these gardens, then we have added more plants. But the main point was this statue and to honor those who had um, raised the funds for it. So a little group of Vietnamese ladies raised the funds and had it made in Vietnam. It's very beautiful, made out of jade. And then to find the means to get it up in the middle of winter because the property is a little bit on a slope and in winter all the paths weren't covered as they are now, um, and the ground was very muddy. So eventually we found a, a very large excavator that could erect its two pieces, and each of those found the base and the top are about at least a ton. So that's quite a large weight. And um, yeah, so we we took upon this project, and really when I say we, there was my handyman who comes once a week, and I found a local man with a, a machine and myself. So having worked very hard, and my health wasn't the best this winter, it was very cold and wet winter, we still managed to do a lot. And recently we've had a few other visitors come to help too. I'll just get you to put on the third one too. 
So from the front, unfortunately I didn't have a very good front picture, uh, but actually she is uh, very beautifully endowed. Now Kuan Yin is not so common in, in the Theravada tradition, though some temples do have them, particularly in the gardens. Uh, but in uh, my tradition and most of the Mahayana traditions, um, the, uh, we call it Kwan Sin Bosal, but more known as Avakaloshteshvara, is the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And a good part of my talk today is to talk about a specific quality of Kwan Sin Bosal. In this case, she is a healing Kwan Sin Bosal, and it was Venerable Fuktan who said we had to put her near the pond. So um, that mean that meant that we actually also had to clear the pond. And in clearing the pond, we accidentally cut the membrane, so the water ran out. <laughs> but it's holding there for now. And she's got a, a medicine vase, so, you know, this is seen as a healing Kuan Yin. And other things around it have come since the, the little table. Um, was sourced locally. So the last one of the Kuan Yin, I think. Ah, oh, yes, so that's just showing it going down and some of the gardens that we're developing on each side and beyond the Kuan Yin now. And the plants mostly either came from other parts of my garden where we replanted or they came from a local, um, there's a local um, nursery actually that um, we're able to provide quite a lot of the trees and plants. So we just put it on to the last one there with the flower, thanks, because we're going to be talking mostly. And we have, I didn't show a lot of flowers, but we have a garden with a lot of flowers. So one of the things I've observed over the years is how many people come because they want to come and visit um, a beautiful space with gardens and flowers, particularly the Asians. And so in developing it, you know, we, we see it as a place that people can come and enjoy this, this space. But coming back to the point of today's talk, and we can just leave that flower there that you can observe it's a very, it's a rhododendron, a little white cream rhododendron. Um, one I planted actually when I first went to King Lake. So I'll start with um, a poem, as I often do. The roots and the stems, the branches and leaves, blossoms, fruit, luster and color are all but flowers in the sky. They are all blooming in the sky, these sky flowers. They produce sky fruits and drop their sky seeds. This is a true characteristic of all things, actually. All things ultimately and unfathomably are just flowers and fruit in the sky. So it's quite perhaps an illusory thought or a, a difficult concept, why they are flowers in the sky, 
Why are all things, in fact, but flowers in the sky? And our meditation informs us when we're very focused and very in the present moment that things appear. Usually in our mind they do appear with shape and colour. And they sort of morphed or change. The more we observe, the quicker the changes. Very fleeting, they arise and they're gone. But actually, just as it is impossible to grasp a flower in the sky, it is impossible to grasp a fleeting thought. And yet, that's what we are trying to do in meditation. But we also have to ask about, in this image, which is based on shape and color and form, we have to ask ourselves, then, what is truly beautiful? You know, we look at a flower, or we look at the smile on the Kuan Yin, beautiful statue. And I live in a lovely place that's nestled in a forest. But where is the true beauty? Where does this arise, and what is it? Most of us have come to an understanding it's something that we manufacture, we create in our minds, we create in the relationship of how we feel and how we discern. What it is that's going on for us right now. You know, we may be in front of a beautiful... I've had people come to my place and not even notice anything in the gardens because they come with a problem that they want me to solve. This is something that I find very common. We are very guided by what it is we see as our um, our reason for being here in this moment, <laughs> our, our need for a particular fix or our need for, a, uh, you know, Resolving a problem. That became my practice, actually. The inquiry of what is, is resolving the problem or the situation or the flower in the sky. What is it? What is it? What it really is? I remembered when I was uh, living in Korea... There was, uh, in the many places I did stay over the years, over the 20 years I was there, all these communities, if they were very large, with younger nuns, there were a lot more rules, a lot more discipline to control their probably still wild behavior. But they were always very beautiful in in a certain sensibility. There was a lot of attention put on to how we ate and how we drank 
tea I'm talking about, or even water. How we ate fruit. How we looked at something, how we walked. It became part of a culture of respect for what it is we are touching or holding or walking on. And as the mind became more mindful about these various interactions throughout the day, and they do put a lot of, more than probably most cultures, the other one that I would think of is perhaps the Vietnamese culture, they put a lot of emphasis on the environment being very beautiful and very clean. You know, so we swept the sand. Actually, it was like sand everywhere. Japan, they sometimes raked the, the stones. But in Korea, the ground was the sand. And it was always very well swept. And the garden's not big, but beautifully pruned and tidy. And this was all to keep our attention present. You shouldn't think you need that, but we actually, I think, in our overwhelmed lifestyles, our, our everyday lives in this society, we are actually always looking for something else that's going to stimulate, excite. And it's usually things that we're already manifesting in our thoughts, things that we're already feeding our desires to and our cravings to, uh, to have, rather than being present with abiding in, embracing, rather than those gentler ways of connection and communication. When I remove, particularly in meditation, but if I take an image say a flower in the sky out of my mind, whatever it's, you know, this thought has created for you, if it is removed, then we have to say, well, what has replaced it? We have to inquire what has come into existence in there. It's very interesting. I was listening to a talk by a very famous, well-known Tibetan teacher by the name of Minga Rinpoche. Many of you will know him, have seen him online. But he was, the whole talk I noticed, and very interesting and quite within my own tradition, he was talking about, and many of his talks address this, about the negative mind states that people have, or even positive ones, but in particular, you know, their anger and sadness and loneliness or whatever, it's all based in compassion. It's not separate from compassion. 
We always think we have to get rid of that to find the capacity to empathize and to to relate with others in a kind way. But he went into the steps and I thought, yes, it's so very true. It's like when you take the layer of rust off steel, the steel is still there. The rust is just a corrosion, it's a, it's a distortion of the, uh, what's beneath it. And also the illusion or delusion that we have that create these very strong emotions. Just like the rust on steel, they're just surface. And after he gave this talk, quite a lengthy talk, and it was part of a course he was doing, everybody kept saying in the questions, well, this and this is happening to me, how do I get rid of it? (laughs) He just talked about how we have to go more deeply into that perception we have of being angry or that view of ourself being sad or that emotion itself, that feeling itself, that's where we go. We go into that to see what's beneath it. And right beneath it, apart from the, the more psychological ideas that, you know, yes, we're angry because we want to have something that is better, a situation that is better. Um, Apart from that, the very root of everything is compassion, is kindness. It is the innate, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama will say over and over again, it is the innate human character. Whatever else we have added to it and become and the ideas of who we are, these are all like a topping, like something that has been manifested through our illusions, our dreams. And uncovering that Just letting it be in many cases, like in meditation, you sit and your anger arises and you start to sweat and you start to feel confused and lonely and tired. And then suddenly you start to slowly settle. Everything starts to settle. As they say, you can't have a lotus without muddy water. Many things cannot be cultivated without having its opposite. You can't have enlightenment without illusions. There's no Buddha without us. There was a question put to a master, what is it like when an enlightened person appears deluded. The master answered, a shattered mirror cannot reflect 
and a fallen flower never returns to its tree. We're not born awake, but we're also not deluded in the way we think we are or in the way life unfolds and confusion grows and covers this flower. In reflecting on this and I might come back to it a little bit, but, you know, it's quite obvious. If you shatter a mirror or a windscreen, it doesn't reflect. You can't see out of it properly. You might say you can see fragments of the nature that reflect into it, but they're just fragmented. And a fallen flower never returns. So we're going from the flower in the sky to a flower that's fallen. It reminded me too of um, in this week, you know, I've always had this view that when I hear of one person who passes away, I don't have to look very far to find two others. And I think nearly every time since I first heard about this, it has been a fact for me. And this week we have had three very wonderful people pass on. And I thought of the fallen flower in this way. One is the uh, very strong and forbearing and enabling, kind, compassionate Bhikkhuni Achan Vyama, who started a temple, a, a monastery for nuns in West Australia. And I know that property, when they first went there, had been a gravel pit, very harsh, beautiful, but very harsh land. And I really wondered, you know, how can this ever become a beautiful place? Of course, now it is. But Achan, she lived in a little caravan for two years on that land, Sometimes forget, people forgot to bring the dana because it's, you know, Kijiganap is not so close to Achambram. I think it's a good hour and 20 minutes or something. And, uh, and the town would not be Buddhist, you know. So relying on dana as a bhikkhuni, living in a little caravan with extreme heat in summer and very cold in winter as it is in that part of the country. Still, she braved the challenges and uh, uh, women came to ordain. After two years, they built a little um, house that was had the sala and rooms to stay, and then they started to build the kutis. But she, at some point... It must be about 12 years ago, we had an um, Australian Sangha Association conference and we were talking about bhikkhuni ordinations in the West. And I'd asked Achan Brahm, would he consider it at that time? He said, very difficult. And I asked Achan Vyama, but he did say, you know, ask Achan Vyama. It's up to her. And so I asked her and she said, well, I'll have to think about it. So it took another two years 
before she came to me and she had this illness had already just began and she asked if I could come and stay with the nuns, come and live with the nuns for a few months and, and teach them while she went into retreat. And during that time she studied the Vinaya. She studied what it is to become a bhikkhuni and how it could happen for her in that tradition. And of course, as most of you here know, that uh, it was the beginning of the Theravada bhikkhuni um, in Australia. And in that, um, not it, actually the ordaining uh, precept was um, Achan Tataloka, who actually uh, had ordained uh, with the Sri Lankan monk and I think a nun in the Vietnamese tradition. So her story is <clears throat> very well known, but she was a pioneer, a sort of trailblazer, until she got this illness. And the extraordinary thing is when I used to go back to WA and visit her, the strength and sort of tenacity as this crippling, disab disabling illness um, you know, developed, she, she still lived another, I think, 10, 11 years, but with incredible dignity. She never lost her posture, her composure, her presence. You know, she was like a flower that was always there, very strong. So... It was just, uh, and she had lived with her um, disciple in a little hermitage. She left the Dhammasara, and Venerable Siri attended her for these many years in a hermitage called um, Patachara Bhikkhuni Hermitage. And so just this last week, uh, just uh, yesterday, they had her funeral. And in this last week, she had passed away. But too, we had um, Viv's beautiful son, who was, a, from all accounts I hear, a remarkable lawyer and very, very deeply appreciated amongst his uh, peers who respected his brilliant mind. And also his students, many students, many young people came out to share how he had helped and mentored them. And for, you know, such a great loss for Liv, she's still an extremely proud mother. For his short life, he did so much. And then I just heard today that um, Savitri... Vitri's husband, Lasat, had passed away too, and they, I believe, had the funeral here yesterday. And Svitri and her husband were very kind in helping me uh, fix up my old car before I have now a nice, <laughs> a nice new one to the kindness of many of you here. Um, and she is, a, a, you know, every week, I think it may be almost every day, she's offering dana to the monks and every week coming to 
to the services here to listen to the teachings. Sadly, her husband um, had an illness that lasted a year, and he passed away. So we have these three very wonderful people in different ways that remind us, because death always reminds us of our own fragile existence and that of all life, no more so than a flower, no more so than a thought, no more so than a feeling. Everything is just in the state of becoming, just in the state of passing away. So when we are passing, of course, we have to ask again, bring that inquiry into that again, you know, what is falling? What is being let go of? What is passing? We had a lot of experience of this during the COVID and reminded daily about those who'd become sick and those who'd passed away. And many of you will have friends and will have experience of enormous amount of loss and change during this time. But what is important is to come back into what it means for me, what do I gain from it, what do I benefit from it, in as far as a flower in the sky, in as far as enlightenment or that which enables awakening, that which enables a deeper truth to unfold. I'd like to read something else too, and this is about um, the Buddha, you know, in relation to this, what I'm talking about. Um, it is about the Buddha in his brief, the moment of his enlightenment, and it is a poem written by uh, a Sangagosha, who was a great scholar. Um, and from, from the Mahayana perspective. At that moment of the fourth watch, when the dawn came up and all that moves was stilled, the great seer reached the stage that he knows no alteration, that is, no change. The sovereign leader, the state of omnipotence. Whenas now the Buddha, he has realized this truth, the earth swayed like a person drunk with wine. The four quarters shone bright with crowds of cities and mighty drums resounded in the sky. A pleasant breeze blew softly and the heavens raised moisture from the cloudless sky and from the trees where dropped flowers and fruit out of due season as if it was due to his honor. At that time, just as in heavenly realms, the mandalas, the mandala flowers and lotuses and water lilies of gold and beryl 
fell from the sky and, and bestrewed the place of the Sakya sage. This idea of the flowers falling from the sky is also something that I've noticed at funerals, and particularly of great teachers. There is a very soft rain. You can, it, it barely wets you, but it nearly always happens at the funeral of a great teacher. Uh, it's, it's like a Jew, but it is still, you can see, you know, this, uh, if you get it in the sunlight, you can see it fall. And they call this flower rain. So it, it doesn't touch you, actually. It hardly, it almost dissolves when it hits the body. It's always called flower rain. But here in the, in, for the Buddha's honor, you know, great lotuses and water lilies and flowers and golden beryl fell from the sky. I mean, it is poetical and it is symbolic, maybe mythical, but these are images of qualities, the Buddha's qualities, the Buddha's enlightened uh, capacities, you might say. And we really look at a flower and consider that flower as myself. I mean, many teachers talk about this. I remember um, Thich Nhat Hanh talking about it and Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti says you have to look at a flower until you become that flower. Until you become it in its um, color, in its very, very delicate shape, because that flower is not still. It is unfolding, uncovering. It's something that is so ephemeral that as you become it, you become that very, very subtle, sensitive person. So the Buddhists, uh, these flowers in the sky is interpreted to mean many things, as I said, the scriptures and lofty teachings, enlightenment. But it is also this ineffable mind, that mind that has already, we have the innate mind for the capacity to liberate. We are like the steel below, below the, the rust. The, 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 what comes out of the soil that makes the tree and the flowers grow, what's in the mud that makes the lotus grow. We have this phenomenon, you might say, that is beyond something arising and passing away that is always there, regardless of whether or not it's nourishing me. It is always there in a, in a capacity to illuminate and nourish and awaken. It is also another simile for emptiness. These metaphors are about our path and how to awaken and how to realize uh, what is what we practice in, Buddha, in Mahayana Buddhism, the understanding of a true emptiness, a true 
negation of this idea of self. And it's not an empty, it's a, you know, it's, when we talk about emptiness, it's the, the unlocking of all the conditioning. It's the, again, that which is there before other things come into play. So the transient and subtle fragrances of a flower are even more something that we cannot um, fully understand and fully experience. The smell is such a, a subtle sense. Thomas Cleary, in his book of this title, and I didn't take this talk from his book, but there is a book by, the, by this title called Flowers in the Sky. He says, there should be no inanity about existence or non-existence or confusion in relation to time, such as the time of flowers flowering. It is like the flowers being imbued with color, yet the color is not necessarily limited to just flowers, at any time, the color have a different effect beyond the vibrations of green and yellow and red and white. So he's taking us in these few lines to what it is before something becomes a flower. What it is before we become who we are in this moment. So he's asking us to go back in time here, the context of time, of the flower flowering. It's talking about us becoming, our potential to become fully awakened. And what is that? Colors are not necessarily limited to flowers, no. But what is it specifically about flowers that attracts our attention or anything beautiful? What is it specifically about the things that we, we see as very beautiful that entice us, that enable us to be attached to that? It is beyond the vibrations of the red, greens and whatever, yellows and blues. Japanese poem, in a flaming burst they kiss the earth and shout to the sky white, pink and yellow. Orchards of plums and peaches, acres of mustard, mustard greens from the top ten directions. Spring brings flowers and flowers bring on spring. So this is about one thing In this case, flowers enabling spring. When we see flowers, after a long winter, we think spring. But then also, the spring itself brings on the flowers. The flowers bring on the spring. There is this reciprocal interrelationships in life that one thing we do is going to have a repercussion 
Buddha called karma, our actions seed the fruits in the future. They enable other behaviors or other conditioning to arise. It's correlating, it's supporting life. And also, we come through this understanding to respecting that all conditional things, they fade and they pass away. But in their fading and passing away, something is coming into fruition. Something is arising. It's a cyclic nature. nature. So when somebody passes away, yes, we have come to love a form, that person, that personality. But something comes out of that. Something in us grows out of that. And that is what we have to understand. It's so important that we understand and we're part of that mystery and we're growing in that mystery of what is arising from that. What does it bring forth? We can't see how a life, one life or one day can affect so many people and so many conditions. One thing we say and have many repercussions, but you can imagine a life, long and short, a baby who brings enormous amount of joy, who has a short time. In the mind of the parents, that baby always remains that baby. With all its beauty, the beauty grows, the memory grows. Roots, stems and branches and leaves and blossoms, luster, and the color of flowers all blooming in the sky, the true characteristic of all things, and the thoughts in their becoming. I was working recently on a, a course which I can't do, but um, I had to cancel it because I had some ill health. But I continued to reflect on it. And coming back to the Kuan Yin image, I wanted to um, yes, okay. <laughs> Thanks. I wanted to talk about this um, mostly the first line in the Heart Sutra. Now, I should have actually put it up for you to see, but I didn't. So I'm going to say the Heart Sutra is really a very essential teachings in the Mahayana, but it is a teaching that we've always thought about primarily as being that to do with um, emptiness, the, the overcoming of the conditioned world that is developed through our senses. So in this very first line, it addresses this Avakloshteshvara, this Bodhisattva. Uh, 
And Avakloshiteshvara Bodhisattva, while practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, clearly saw that all five uh, skandhas or aggregates are empty and thus is relieved from all suffering and distress. So the first line here is this Bodhisattva, the avatar of compassion. And she's talking to Sariputta. And Sariputta is one of two of the main disciples of the Buddha. But he's also known for his great wisdom. And Sariputta, she says to Sariputta, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. Cessations, perceptions, formations and consciousness are all like this. I'm not going to go into the whole sutra. It's, a, it's a very in-depth and it's really the smallest of all the prajna, all the wisdom sutras. They condensed it down to a pay, to a, I can't remember how many lines, but it's not very many lines. In the other sutras, what's very interesting, because I've studied some of them, in the other wisdom sutras, they just talk about the bodhisattva. But in this one, they bring in Avakloshteshvara. And I thought, when I was studying this, that the point of having Avakloshteshvara, Bodhisattva of Compassion, teaching Venerable Sariputta, and we have these two, the compassion and the wisdom, but it is the compassion, the depth of compassion, that reveals the wisdom here. Now we don't think of this often, but they say that those who'd studied this sutra, that their, their minds would become almost fried, would become brittle and hard or would burn if they had not developed the compassion. To, do, to be able to have the insight to, to go into the depth of that wisdom, the depth of that emptiness, that unconditioned, that unborn, that selfless self, to go into that requires a cultivation of compassion and a gentling of the mind, a gentling of the heart. But it also spoke to me in context of what we've been touching on today with those loved ones who've passed away. It is something that happens to us as humans when we experience things that we are very close to, that we've nurtured, especially for a mother and a father, nurtured and fed. And when it leaves, our hearts and our minds are softened. It's like the greatest teaching of compassion because we have to face the greatest depth of suffering in the heart and loss. So I bought this little part into here because, you know, it is part of the flower in the sky. 
the impermanent, the ethereal, the, the loss, the change. But what it brings to this is that to enable the depth of wisdom necessary to penetrate into the core of conditioning. And as Mingo Rinpoche said, compassion is the foundation. To penetrate to the ground of being, which is what it is sometimes referred to in Mahayana, to for there to be no eyes, no nose, you know, to not have these senses exist as we think they are, to not have the attachment to them. We have to go to before they arose, before they exist. A little hard to understand, but Avaklosh Teshvara is offering this teaching not just to Sariputta, but that compassionate uh, part of ourself is enabling this wisdom part of ourself to go to its greatest depth. And she's guiding him, you know, through her cultivation of loving kindness and compassion to enter something that is luminous, intrinsic, aware, and ultimately uh, the foundation of all conditioned things to arise from. Hmm. I did write more about that, but I won't go there now. Just finishing up soon. As a teacher said, I originally came to this land to rescue deluded people by transmitting the Dharma. One flower will open five petals. This was Bodhidharma, the founder of um, Zen Buddhism in China. One flower will open five petals and the fruit will ripen by itself. This is a really important little verse here because he had five students you know, one was his flesh, one was his his thoughts, one was his bones, and one was his essence, so forth. And he said, he's saying here, one flower will open five petals and the fruit will ripen by itself. It means that if you have a student and they awaken to some truth, some level of insight or, or enlightenment, that will in time ripen by itself and inspire others and awaken others. So whatever you are doing, it's not about just you doing it. You're not just meditating for you. Whatever you're cultivating here, this is going to affect many others around you. And then what you inspire in them will in time ripen and produce blossoms 
of wisdom, blossoms of compassion. And Huening, the great fifth patriarch of Zen, said, if a poisonous flower blossoms in the mind, that means if delusion and toxic thoughts blossom in the mind, in the ground, mind's ground, five blossom flowers from that stem, together they will create the karma of ignorance, a body of ignorance, an ocean of ignorance. Then the mind ground is blown by the winds of karma. If purpose-filled flowers bloom in the mind ground, five blossom flowers from a stem, together they practice the prajna wisdom. In the future, this will be their enlightenment of their Buddhahood. So there's still, you know, much for me to do in my environment, in my cultivation of my life, my practice, my service, my own development of the Dhamma. But I don't see them as separate. When I'm cultivating in my garden, and um, actually one of my students is here today and he was there helping dig in the plants and sharing how to mulch and how to water as you're planting and to give them a big enough hole so they can get their roots out and how to tease the roots out when you take a, a plant out of a pot. You know, there is a way to do things a way to prune, a way to do things. But I feel it's a whole life journey. It's everything we do. We don't always, I don't always communicate so well or so kindly. But my intentions are always quite integral. Because I was very fortunate to, to train and I have many monastic friends in, in all the traditions who still inspire and inform me. But I see it, whatever we do, it's not just coming every Sunday to get a little bit of a pep, you know, to water the garden, so to speak. It's what we do with our whole life. And if there's aspects of our life that are unattended, that is aspects of our own mind that are not being nourished and looked after. Parts of the garden that are neglected, there's parts of our mind that is neglected. And I'll finish with this poem, a Chan master, uh, Panyun, well-versed in the Buddha way, I go the non-way, without abandoning my ordinary personal affairs, the conditioned and name and form are all flowers in the sky. Nameless and formless, I leave birth and death behind. It's like an enlightenment poem.
So thank you for listening and staying with it. Some of it I think I was putting you to sleep, but it was good to see you woke up. <laughs> um, any questions? Any questions? Sometimes it's too much to think about. So you've had a very full day, a full morning already, and you have the rest of the day to enjoy yourselves. Um, yes. Online. Oh, online. Okay. Right. Forget there's people watching out there. <laughs> Thank you, Sunim. There are a couple of comments I'd like to share, and you might want to comment on, and also then a question. <clears throat> Someone wrote, The amazing thing is that flowers don't even have eyes to see how beautiful they are. <laughs> I don't know if you want to just comment on that. Just uh -huh. Well... flowers with eyes, then you have to have the mind that cognizes the idea of beauty and all the rest of the ignorance that goes with that. But in a way, we're, we're like a flower without eyes a lot of the time too. So that's something to reflect on in ourselves. What is a flower without eyes? And uh, another comment that... Um, the, this idea of finding inspiration in nature to help with our practice and that's very much what you have been talking about through the beauty of the gardens and flowers mm. yeah well in nature you know the Buddha lived and practiced in nature you know you don't need to have fancy gardens of course you know to practice in nature you know, we have very beautiful environments everywhere in we're very fortunate in Australia um, and particularly here in Victoria too, you know, to, to just go out and find a little spot of nature to go and practice in. But it's because when you practice in nature and the Buddha and many sages um, throughout time have discovered that the nature within and the nature without are not separate. So the environments that we go and sit in we soon become that and we soon reflect ourselves through it. The environment, uh, if it's like holding a tree or listening, you can hear there's a lot of um, life in, in all of this. And that is nature itself is life, is living, is becoming, is, is wisdom, is compassion. Thank you, Sunim. And then there is a question. Um, are loving kindness and compassion an end to themselves or are they just stepping stones to enlightenment? Did the Buddha no longer have these qualities because he was enlightened? It's sort of like two questions in one, but maybe take them one at a time. Are loving kindness and compassion an end to themselves or are they just stepping stones to enlightenment? No, they're not separate. Um, 
and they're not an end, and I don't own it, you know, we don't own it. It is a, an innate human condition that the more enlightened or the more awake you are, the, the deeper these responses are, the, the greater capacity we have to um, do more compassionate action and to, to um, have empathy and to have an altruistic capacity. Without awakening, we always see ourselves in some sort of separation. The more um, liberated we are, the more the, the Buddha, that's how the Buddha lived his whole life, with compassion and wisdom. His actions were compassion, you know, guided by, by, by wisdom. But they're not something separate, you know. Some, one enables the other, one deepens the other, but certainly uh, an awakened mind um, allows the capacity to be much greater. You know, while we're still very limited with a, a self-view or a, 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 a self-needing capacity, then we have very limited capacity to see others and to see what is needed out there. What was the second part of that? Did the Buddha no longer have the qualities of loving kindness and compassion because he was enlightened? Well, no. The Buddha's. I think. I think that's the Buddha had more loving kindness and compassion because he was enlightened. Because he could also, you know, that was one of the things he he could see where the greatest suffering was. You know, in his meditation. He would view, you know, uh, reflect through meditation through the night as to where he could be of greatest service with, with his wisdom and his kindness. But all every action he did was out of care and kindness, and um, you know, through through teaching the uh, the precepts was all about how to develop the mind and. Uh, cultivate a way that would bring no harm, but he lived the 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 life of bringing no harm and only bringing um, compassion into the world. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. So, yes, if no more questions, yeah. That's right. Uh, the sorry, the uh, those are the four noble abodes or noble qualities of a mind That's in right. any mind. And the deeper your wisdom is, those qualities are deeper in you. So Buddha, being the most uh, enlightened being, had the deepest compassion, deepest uh, uh, loving kindness, yeah, yeah, yeah. deepest altruism, and deep mm -hmm. equanimity. So it's, it's a direct relationship between the wisdom and the depth of these qualities. Yeah, thank you. Very correct. So for those of you who may be staying for lunch, if anyone has any questions, um, be available after lunch. And um, for others of you, yes, please keep coming back to the Buddhist Society Victoria and wonderful to see so many of you here again today. Ah, uh, do sadhu sadhu, thank you.